Scripture reading this morning is from uh, found in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. Uh, you can find it in your pew Bible, pew Bible on, 12, on page 1239, or you can follow me uh, up front. Subtitle is Walk by the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. It's God's precious word for his people. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm the one that's usually up here explaining the text that is read. So let me uh, pray for us as we approach the text this morning. Uh, Father, I pray as we uh, contemplate the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we grow in grace, that we attach the roots of our systems to Christ, that we abide in Christ and Him in us, and therefore bear much fruit for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. To catch you up, if you haven't been here, is we're in... A Renew series, but we're doing a mini-series within that Renew series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives because he's integral in the growth of a Christian. He dwells in us and he causes the growth. Uh, Two weeks ago, we asked the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And we spent some time talking about how the Holy Spirit is our advocate, that he primarily points us to the person and work in of Christ. And so one of the ways you know you're talking about the Holy Spirit is when you're not talking about the Holy Spirit and you're talking about Jesus. Because Jesus says in John that uh, when I'm gone, I'm going to send you another and he's going to remind you of my words and my deeds. And so that's how we answered that question. Then last week we looked at the question of what does the Holy Spirit do? And he gives us a new nature. And because of that new nature, we have a new ambition, a new desire to be like Christ, to grow in grace. And we said, because that is a process, not an instantaneous thing, that we need a covering to make us acceptable to God until the day that work is completed. And so this morning, we're going to look at the fruit, the byproduct of that process, and uh, specifically, focus on verses 22 through 
25. I know we read a lot, but you needed to hear the context of these few verses, but it begins and talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Let me do a little uh, autobiography here. About uh, 35 years ago, I became a Christian as as a young adult, and when I became a Christian, I began to grow uh, quite fa- uh, 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 fast. Uh, I was very excited about the faith. I was reading anything and everything I could get a hold of. I didn't know a, a lot about Christianity, didn't know a lot about the Bible. And so those were things that I was very excited about. And I remember hearing somebody talk about these verses simply uh, that we are going to uh, grow into the image of Jesus Christ, that at some point that we're going to be like Christ. Well, I took that and extrapolated out from how fast I was growing when I first became a Christian and concluded within about 20 years, you would not be able to tell the difference between Jesus and me. You're only laughing because you can tell the difference between Jesus and me. But you can imagine as a, as a young believer thinking that, man, you're, you're growing at such a, a great speed. But the, the saddest part is to look back and not see that trajectory uh, continued. And so it's possible for you to have the impression uh, that I'm more saintly than I am. Part of that is a public persona. We're in a large church. It's hard for everyone to get to know me at the same uh, a level. I understand that, and but I just want you to know that some of the things or many of the things in which I will talk about this morning are the same things that I struggle with. And because of that, there I think it should be an encouragement uh, to all of us that we're not finished products yet, that we are all in process. We're works in process. Let me give you the goal And then we will look at the three points. The goal is from Galatians 4.19, the previous uh, chapter. If you have a Bible open, just one page over. And in verse 19 of chapter 4, Paul gives the goal of your faith. He says, my little children, he's talking to the people he writes the letter to Galatians to, For whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth. He's talking about his relationship to these people until Christ is formed in you. He doesn't say might be formed in you one, but he does say it's going to happen. We are going to be in the image of Christ. Therefore, the goal of our sanctification, our growth, our trajectory is to be like Christ in his fullness to embody the fruit of the Spirit that we will read in just a moment. I want to set your mind that that Paul is using an agricultural term here, fruit, because we know that fruit does not grow on its own. In fact, it is solely dependent upon its root. That is, if the root is not healthy, there will be no fruit. Or if it's partially healthy, the fruit will be stunted. It won't look like it's supposed to. It won't be as sweet and good as it can be in its fullness. And therefore, the root is what needs to be transformed in order for the byproduct to exist, the fruit. 
The three points that I have for us this morning is that change, growth, is incredibly frustrating. If you haven't figured out that yet, it's because you haven't been a Christian long enough. And that's okay. But that's where we stand. But frustration does not necessarily mean failure. Just because we're frustrated about the speed or the fullness of our growth does not mean that we're failures. And then last, I want to give you something encouraging at the end, and that is change is inevitable, which is good news. So here's the fruit again, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against such things. There is no law. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about those pieces of fruit. We just know that we are not there in patience and kindness and and joy and self-control without me making you feel any worse that you have not achieved the goal of all of those things. Let's just assume nobody has arrived, that there's not anyone in the room that we're going to be confused with Jesus. Is that okay? Can we start there? Now, if there's someone who thinks that they're already arrived, you can leave. You don't need this. But the rest of us, I want to give you reasons why it's so frustrating, incredibly frustrating. The first reason is that it's seasonal. Growth does not happen on a constant trajectory. It comes in seasons. And that's why the agricultural term is so helpful for us. Where are our lawnmowers? They are on sabbatical. They're on sabbatical because the grass is on sabbatical. It's gone dormant because we're still in the middle of winter. When winter ends and spring comes, things begin to grow and blossom and fruit appears. So Paul is grabbing a hold of an agricultural term. We're not an agricultural society anymore. And so we're losing these metaphors that were so prevalent in the first century when they were being used that I have to give you that understanding that there are periods of time in our growth. And you can look back, particularly if you've been a Christian for very long, you can look back where there were times where you had really rapid growth and then periods of time where it looked like a real dry spell where there was no growth. And then in between, little growth. You just know that experientially when you look backwards over time. The second reason I think change is incredibly frustrating is because it's incredibly slow. At least slower than we hoped and certainly not as much as we want. Have you ever seen an apple grow with your naked eye? Of course not. You can't see the growth of an apple with your naked eye. How do you measure growth? Think about your children. How do you measure their growth? You uh, take a picture 
and then you get another picture later on and another picture later on, and you're able to see that over a period of time, there has been growth. You take a child to the doctor, and the doctor measures the child when he has his uh, visit with his pediatrician, and then you come back a year later or or uh, six months later, and they measure again, and they say, your child was in this percentile, and now he's in this percentile of growth for his age. You can see that measurement. It's over time. At, at, in my house, you can still see in our a laundry room the measurement of my children at different ages of their life, and that's how you measure growth. And that's true about us. You measure growth over a long period of time, not in an instant, not in a snapshot for people. And character growth is like that. You might be surprised, but patience has always been an issue for me. I'm not an incredibly patient person, but I'm an incredibly more patient person than I was 20 years ago. So imagine that. One of the things that God has taught me as he's grown me in patience is not to be so frustrated with other people's growth. That is, I want other people to grow even faster than I do. That's my impatience. But because my own growth in that area has been so slow, I have learned to be patient with others who have other areas that they're growing in. Is there one or two areas in your life that first you can say, yes, I can see that over a long period of time that God has brought growth in. Or maybe there's one or two areas that you can identify in that you have not yet grown. You haven't seen that kind of growth. I think that's important to keep track of in your life, like those pictures or the measurements on the wall. Let me give you a third reason. The third reason I think that change is incredibly frustrating for us is that it's proportional. What I mean by that is, first, Paul does not use the plural. That is, in English, if we want to say plural fruit, we don't say fruits. We say the fruit that's on the table. And it could be ten fruit, it could be one fruit, or it could be a hundred fruit. In the original language that the Bible was written in, they have plural and singular endings. When Paul writes the fruit of the Spirit, he's using singular. Even though he's about to list out a bunch of things, he calls it all singular fruit. What that means is there's only one singular fruit of the Spirit. That anything that God works on in your life is the work of the Holy Spirit. It just has many different facets kind of like a diamond. As you turn it, you see the different facets, but it's all one diamond. That's the fruit of the Spirit. But it grows proportionately. What do I mean by that? These facets, though they grow together because they're one thing, they don't grow equally. Let me give you... I was trying to think of a metaphor that might help you understand this. Think of it this way. Those of you who own a swing set, and you remember those horrible days of putting it together based on the directions. And you're putting it together, and you get to the point where you're going to put the swings on, and you find out there's a missing link. And it and it's not in the top where you can deal with it. It's in the middle of the chain, and so you have two chains. 
And you have to think together, well, how am I going to put the swing set together? And so you go get a paper clip and you hold the swing together by making that the link between the top half of the swing and the bottom half. How strong is that swing? Is it as strong as all the other links or only as strong as the paper clip? All right, it's not rhetorical. It is as strong as the paper clip, as its greatest point. When we think about our spiritual growth, we tend to think of our strengths, don't we? We tend to measure our growth, our maturity, the work of the Spirit, based on the, the area that He has developed our strength in. I think it would be better for us to measure our spiritual growth by our weakness. Because we are only as strong, maturity-wise, as our weakest link. And I think that as we begin to think about spiritual growth, we're not measuring it so much by the things that we do well, but by the things that we don't yet do well. Also, it is possible to fake these things or at least have them as counterfeits. Let me give you an example. Have you ever met somebody who's a Christian, or maybe they're not a Christian, but they have incredible joy about them? Joy is in the list. It can be uh, uh, dispositional. That is, that person can just be the way God made them as a joyful person and has nothing to do with the work of the Spirit. They can be an incredibly patient person. But that could be dispositional, not necessarily the work of the Spirit. And so these things can be uh, not faked, but at least counterfeit, not the work of the Spirit. I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that they can be copied. Just like Pharaoh's magicians uh, were able to copy the works of Moses that God did through Moses. Or think about uh, uh, Judas. Do you remember the scene where, where, where Judas and all the disciples are at the Lord's Supper and, and, and Jesus says, the one who will betray me is one of, the God, one of the ones that I'll give this cup to. And they all ask, is it I? Nobody says, it's Judas. I knew it was Judas all along. We've been looking at his fruit and we have not seen any, particularly in the area of faithfulness. We have not seen that. So we're putting Judas up. Nobody said, it's obvious who's the betrayer. Why? Because many of these things can be counterfeited to a way that you don't know whether it's the work of the Spirit or is it a dispositional thing. And I think that's important for us to recognize. The other thing I want to say before I go on to the fourth one is we don't tell the apple, grow faster. You can do it. I'm sure every farmer uh, gets out there and looks at his tomato plants and, and talks to them. And when they're dwarfed or they're immature and they're supposed to be ripe, you say, grow. But how's that working for you? Typically not well, because that's not how tomatoes grow. Jesus says in John 15, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Did you hear that? It's slow. It's frustrating. It's proportional. It's seasonal. 
But the key is the root has to be connected to Christ. And I think that's very hopeful because if it was left up to us, we wouldn't grow much. At least some of us. Let me give you the last reason I think it's incredibly frustrating. It's because it's anticlimactic. All growth is. What do I mean by that? Paul says that if you're a child of Christ, you have been born again, this childbirth from uh, uh, Galatians 4 and 19, he says, will be formed in Christ. You will, your life will become like Christ. It may not happen all in this lifetime, but it'll happen in an instant when you've gone to glory. So it's going to happen. It's a promise. Christ is going to be formed in us. The Holy Spirit that is in you, if you are a follower of Jesus, it's transforming your roots into the image of Christ, and it bears fruit in this life, though slow, though seasonal, though proportional, and though anticlimactic in the sense it's going to happen, it's important for us to recognize that it's going to happen. Because the same power that is in you is the same power that spoke to the grave and Jesus came out of the tomb. It's not a different power. It's the same one. Let me give you a a journal, a few entries that I, I, whenever I get discouraged about my growth, I love Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson was a 18th century Anglican. He was a, a titan in the 18th century. And he kept these journals at, for 43 years, and we have them so we can read them. And so let me just read you a few of the snippets out of his journal that I think we can identify with. Everyone in this room can identify with some area of their life that needs more growth. 1738 is when he has his first entry about this issue. He says, I'm fighting sloth, and I'm getting up early to pray. Oh, Lord, enable me to redeem the time in which I have spent in sloth. If you don't know what sloth is, it's idleness, it's laziness. That's what he's struggling with. In 1757, Almighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time missed in idleness and sin, though diligent application of the years yet remaining. He's trying to redeem the final years of his life, about 40 Three years. In 1759, enable me, Lord, to shake off idleness and sloth. 1761, I have resolved that I am afraid to resolve again. In 1764, he does it again. My idleness is my last uh, reception of the sacrament, and I have sunk into grossest sluggishness. My purpose is from the time forward to avoid idleness and rise early to pray. Five months later, I resolve to rise early, no later than 6 a.m. if I can. In 1765, I purpose to rise by 8 a.m. Because though I will not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, which is often 2 p.m. in the afternoon. In 1769, I am not in a state to form any resolutions I purpose and hope to rise by 8 a.m. In 1775, I look back upon resolution and improved amendments year after year that have been made and broken. Why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. I resolve again to rise at 8 a.m. In 
1781, 43 years after the first century, three years before his death, I will not despair. Help me, oh my God. I resolve to rise by 8 a.m. or sooner to avoid idleness. Here's my point. We tend to think in beginnings and ends. It's the way we're made. Time started, time's going to end. But we tend to want to have everything about us. We're going to grow in patience. So this year I'm going to focus on patience. And by the time I get to the end, I'm going to have the patience of Job. Well, 43 years later, Lord, give me more patience. You see what I'm saying is we tend to confuse the inevitability of our growth with our growth. And they're not the same. You might struggle. I might struggle. My whole life with something. I know in the end, it will be made perfect. But it may not be from me for between now and then. If we can just get a hold of that, we're going to have more grace for ourselves and more grace for others. And that is attractive to our world, particularly an instantaneous change. We ask people who join our church, do you believe you're a sinner without hope, save in a sovereign mercy? And what we tend to apply that only to is our justification. But that is also true for our sanctification. Save from His sovereign mercy, there will be no growth. And what growth that we have is by His sovereign mercy alone. I know it's frustrating. I'm willing to admit, I'm frustrated. I wish it was faster. I wish it was more, not just for my sake, but for your sake. Sunday after Sunday, you have to hear the word through this failed human being. I wish it wasn't so. But you can join the line right behind me. But frustration does not mean necessarily that we have failed. It could be just that we're in the midst of process. Let me give you two signs so that you know that the Holy Spirit is working in you. The very first one is evident, the fact that you're sitting here today. You're still in the fight. You're here on a Sunday because you want to be reminded of God's sovereign mercy for you. What if perseverance as a Christian was just as much about continuing to show up and wrestle as it is about making progress. I know we want to make it about progress, and I want progress. But what if part of the victory is simply showing up and continuing to fight, continuing to wrestle your whole life? You heard that in Samuel Johnson. He didn't give up. He questioned whether to resolve again this year to fight sloth. But he recognized for 43 years of his idleness. And he's considered a titan of the faith. How about us? The common folk. 
The second picture or sign that the Holy Spirit is still at work in your life is not just that you show up and you wrestle, but you see your need for grace. I see my need for grace. And if I want any example in the world, and I love the fact that God gives us heroes in the Bible that are just like us, and in some cases worse off than us, I love Paul. Paul has two besetting sins. There might be more if we had more time to look at his life a little closer, but there are two obvious sins of Paul's that he struggles with. One is contentment, and the other one is pride. We know contentment because chapters 6 and 7 of Romans are about his struggle with coveting. He says, you know, I didn't even know coveting was a bad thing until I read the scriptures that said, thou shalt not covet. And then when I read, thou shalt not covet, I began to want even more. And we know coveting, this idea of contentment, this idea uh, of wanting something more than what he has, what God has provided, was an issue because he writes a whole section of one of his letters on, I have found contentment in want and in plenty. And he goes through all of that. Because God has used circumstances and struggles in His Scriptures and the work of the Spirit to grow Him in contentment. But let me give you another one that Paul struggles with that becomes fairly obvious, and this is his pride issue. Paul's got every reason to be a braggart, especially in the Jewish world. Because he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he has been from the right family, he's had the right education, he's done the right things, Uh, he's a Pharisee, people recognize that he's a leader, he becomes the the chief uh, persecutor of the Jewish nation upon Christians when Christianity gets started, he's made, he's got things to brag about. He becomes an apostle, not by one who followed Jesus for three years, but one who had a specific uh, particular uh, uh, picture of Jesus on the road. Uh, And so Paul's got plenty to say out there about who he is. And often he struggles with that. But we know because he says, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. God gave me a thorn in the flesh so that... I would not be proud. He says, I prayed often that God would remove this thorn, and he never does to the best of our ability. We don't know what that thorn is. The people have speculated all kinds of things. But we know that whatever it was, he believes God gave it to him as a matter of grace. How do we know that? The word that Paul chooses, he gave me, a thorn in the flesh. He gave me. That word gave is the word panis in Greek, which is the word for grace. One of the words for grace. And so what he's saying is, God graced me with a thorn in the flesh so that I may not be proud. And God dealt with that through that means. And I think what that does is that the struggles of our lives if we're willing to deal with it, is to recognize it's pushing us to Jesus. It's pushing our roots to be connected and abide in Christ. And the Spirit is changing Paul and changing us by using everything that goes on in our lives, things that we think are disconnected to our spiritual lives, things that happen to us that other people do to us, things that we have done, all of them for the sake of maturing us 
in Christ. And therefore, our maturity is as much about the posture as it is about the behavior. It's about how we receive the things that God does in our lives as as much as what those things do. I quoted Flannery O'Connor. She was a Southern writer, and one of the things she says in in one of her books, A A Good Man is Hard to Find, she says, all you need is need. The first offering that God is looking from us when we become Christians is our need for Him. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our devotion. He doesn't need our time. He doesn't, he doesn't need our talents. What He wants from us is simply the recognition that we have a need that He can supply. God's sovereign mercy. And that begins a lifelong devotion, a lifelong giving of ourselves. That's what Augustus Topley was meaning when he said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. God's power is manifested clearest, not in our strengths, but in our weaknesses. I didn't make that up. That's what Paul said. Let me leave you with this encouragement. How does change happen? Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The most important thing that we can do to bear fruit is to belong to Jesus. Fruit follows root. We must belong before we can be transformed. Fruit, therefore, is a byproduct of being in Christ and Christ in us through His Spirit. It's what Paul means in verse 25 when he says, we are to be in the Spirit by walking in step with the Spirit, which means we desire what the Spirit desires. And last week, I told you, uh, two weeks ago, I told you what the Spirit desires. He desires Christ. And one of the, the evidences or the fruits in our lives is that we desire what He desires, is to know Christ and to make Him known. Jesus is the pearl of the great price that is worth us selling everything to have. Let me give you an example from King David's life from Psalm 27. He says, One thing I ask and one thing I seek. What's the one thing David wants? What's the one thing David is after? That I may behold the beauty of the Lord. Here's the truth. David doesn't become a man after God's own heart by seeking to be a man after God's own heart. David becomes a man after God's own heart because he seeks the beauty of the Lord. He seeks to see the beauty of the Lord and that makes him a man after God's own heart because that is what is on God's heart. Another illustration that might help. There's a movie called As Good As It Gets and I'm not recommending the movie. I just liked it. I love this scene. Helen Hunt has had it with her friend that's being played by Jack Nicholson. And and he's an obsessive, compulsive, he's got all kinds of issues. And uh, so she's had it with him as a friend. 
And so she says to him, you have 30 seconds to say something to me or I'm out of here. And so what Jack Nicholson's character says back is, you make me want to be a better man. Jesus will never eject you from him. He's already paid the price for the relationship with you. And as we look at him, as we attach, are attached to him and him to us through the work of the Spirit, that makes us want to be a better person for him. That's where that motivation and desire, it's not guilt, it's not meeting somebody who's a, a, a spiritual giant and you want to emulate them. It's simply knowing Jesus, looking at Jesus, makes you want to be a better person for him. What if true character growth began with less introspection on us, on ourselves, and more gazing at Jesus? That's what Robert Murray Machane was trying to say when he said, take one look at your sin, but ten looks at Jesus. Why? Because if you want to deal with your sin, you need to do it from a healthy position, not from an unhealthy one. God is a gardener, and therefore he's going to prune. He's going to cut us back. He's going to use everything for our growth but we are going to grow and we're going to get there. I love Ephesians 2.10 and I'll end with this. Ephesians 2.10 says this, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The word work is poema. We get the English word poetry, poem, poet from that word. And therefore you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, if Christ is in us and we're in Christ, then we are God's unfinished poems. And he is the poet. He has not finished your poem yet. It's to be finished. We want to know, but that's he only tells us what we need to know at the time because he is God and we are not. But to encourage you, you're a poem. And God is the poet who will finish it. Where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. And therefore, you are going, I am going to be in the image of Christ, even though it is incredibly frustrating because it's slow, it's seasonal, it's proportional, and it's anticlimactic to the fact that it's going to happen. But the truth is, it is going to happen. Change is inevitable. Whether you're looking at Second Corinthians where we're looking at Christ with a, with a, with a veiled face, but then we're going to know Him clearly because we are going to be transformed into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these beautiful verses that encourage me so much. And I pray that encourages your body as we sit here and think about our growth and how frustrated we've been at different times about our growth. To know full well you are bringing about the change. You are changing us and that you will get us all the way there. That none of it is dependent upon us. And yet you still call us to be involved in the means of grace because you use that for the purpose of changing our hearts, to transform our roots, 
to give us a new motivation to be a better person for you. And I pray that we can do that for each other, to point to Jesus that our roots might be healthy and therefore the fruit, the byproduct, will also be healthy and full and sweet and can feed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.